Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. The pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the 2020 Election Edition. We are here to take you from election to inauguration, examining the issues through the lens of history. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. We are here walking you the whole way from election to the inauguration, like you just heard. Uh, We are sitting just a less about a week away from the general election right now, Jeff. One week. So you'll be getting this uh, the next day. So less than a week at this point. Um, And now, you know what we have instead of an election day, we nowadays we really have an election season. Right. The election has started. uh, You know, 60 million people have voted already. They expect maybe 150 million voters. So you've got like more than a third of uh, of the potential voters have probably already cast their vote. So that's right. one thing to keep in mind as we talk with you. I've already voted. My son waited in uh, line for two hours today to vote. Uh, I think you've already cast your vote. Did no, you not? No, I, I go down. Uh, you know, I live in a small town. Uh, it's it's not very diverse ethnically. Uh, so nobody keep, tries to put me in a long line <laughs> to keep me from voting. Uh, and it usually takes me about 15 minutes. I walk down the block and, and go into the community building and cast my Easy vote. peasy, lemon squeezy. Yeah, I'm going to do it on election day. All right. So today, normally Jeff brings us the beer. Today, I am supplying the beverage. Um, and it's brand new. Um, it was out for a while. You could only get it in bars. And very recently, they started bottling it. And I went out and quick bought some. It is Yingling Hershey's Chocolate Porter. Uh, two great traditional Pennsylvania uh, companies. Oldest Brewer and uh, everybody's heard of Hershey's. Right. Um, two great Pennsylvania companies. It's a porter, and I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you, Jeff, I'm not exactly sure what a porter is. Um, if you could maybe teach me, that would be awesome. Well, uh, uh, porter is a style of beer that started in England, and actually uh, people that hold things along the docks and the River Thames are called porters, so this was a style of beer favored by them. It's They're usually dark in color. I think people know that. It has a dark brown malt that they use. Okay. And it's a, usually a fairly strong beer. It usually has a little more alcohol than a regular lager beer would have. So. Okay, I, I've already cheated. I've drank a, n- a number of right. drinking, so drinking, whatever. I don't. Whatever, I, I'm not saying that properly, but I've had a number already. Not today, okay. but certainly over the last week. So let's enjoy it and let, tell me what you think. Wow, you, you taste the chocolate you know, for I, sure. I will tell you, I'm in love with this beer. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think of this, you know me, I'm a little more on the bitter, hoppy yes, than the you are. chocolate. However, it's wintertime, mm-hmm. getting cold, you know, sitting around a fire, having a couple of these, I yeah. think would be a great thing. I think your porters and your stouts are, are the great winter beers. And this would certainly be one. You know what? I just ate and I didn't have dessert. It's a great dessert beer. Yeah, because of the sweetness. So That's you know? where I'm enjoying it. I, in the evening, I, I get one. I'm sitting on the sofa. 
I'm drinking a little you know, of my porter. I don't know porter. if I can give it a pure A, I but I'll tell you what, an A for the, for the right purpose. Okay. It's perfect for the right situation. I am infatuated this beer right now. This is if, if, if I was in high school, this would be my crush, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so there's there we go. There's the beer. Okay, so go get yourself some Yingling Hershey's Chocolate Porter. So today... We're going to tackle a variety of issues, all centering around trust and trusting the process and trusting information. And uh, we're going to talk about polling. We're going to be talking about trusting in the institutions that we have set up that this whole system works because we believe in the process and people who attack that process in essence are really attacking who we are as a nation yeah and you know it says in the declaration of independence governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed in other words elections that's how we consent and that's in the declaration it was taken from uh, earlier writings by john locke and people like that and there was an argument uh, over who ruled, you know, who was going to have the real power in England? Was it going to be Parliament, part, right. of, part of which was the House of Commons was elected? Was it going to be the king? And, you know, England eventually figured out that it was going to be Parliament was going. And, and so that's what, you know, that's the essence of what we have. And what we have is a democratic republic or a representative democracy. Sometimes I'll see on Facebook that people get in arguments and they'll go, we don't have a democracy, we have a republic. All right, I got news for you. If you vote, democracy means rules by the people. If you get to choose your leaders, you got a democracy. It's just, you're just not going down to the forum or the stadium right. and, ha and voting on things directly. And so we have a representative democracy and Madison thought that was great because if you have just a few representatives representing a lot of people, you can have a great big country. But, Matt, but Madison was arguing against the common belief at the time, though. Like when we were forming our nation, the common belief at the time was a republic, a democracy can only exist on a really small scale that really had to have this these personal relationships, right? Small nations are the cradle of liberty. That's what the Tocqueville said. And, and you know, Madison's disagreeing with them. And that's a big deal. Yeah. And that this is what Federalist Paper number 10 is about. Right. And, you know, and, and what he said is, we're not going to get rid of factions because if you're going to have a democracy, you got to have freedoms. You have to have freedom of speech and freedom of the press. That means people aren't going to have the same ideas. So you're not going to get rid of people having different ideas and getting in groups and trying to push them, which is what a, a faction is. Right. We said we're going to have tons of factions. The more the merrier. The more the merrier. And they're going to have to sort of make uh, temporary alliances get together. Uh, that he the Constitution was not written with parties in mind. So, you know, he's not necessarily here talking about political parties per se, but just different, you know, economic interests, religious interests, sort of temporary special regional interests, interests you know, and they're, they're going to get together. And what he thought is, well, they can't they can't control things for very long. They won't be able to run this government because there'll be another combination. And he thought that was great because what he's worried about and our founders were most worried about is something that would take our freedom away. So if you get somebody, if you get a single party state or a faction who control and there's no real competition for power, there goes your freedom. You don't have that anymore. 
So I think Americans really need to keep this in mind uh, when they realize that that it's it's in the system uh, to uh, have a government that you might not have voted for that time. You might not be in the right faction that's controlling. That's the way it's designed. And so the thing that's important, though, is you think that government is legitimate, that that government can rule over you because you had a choice in an election. So in essence, conflict is built into the system, yes. and that's a good thing. But even within that conflict, when you lose, you realize that you lost. It was fair. The right. vote was fair, and whoever's in power is there because his faction was more powerful than the faction I belong to. Right. And that's okay. And that's okay. And we do have, I mean, you know, we had Trump, he's a Republican. We had Obama, he's a Democrat. And before that, we had Bush, Republican. Before that, Clinton. We do have alterations of power. And uh, unlike a large sections of the world throughout history, they're peaceful. I mean, there might be protests. Sometimes there might even be a riot, but there's not coups. You right. know, America doesn't have coups, at least so far. So it's it's very important to, uh, to remember that and uh, the idea of legitimacy. And that's very important, too, if somebody, our commonsensical notion is that if somebody gets the most votes in, in, in terms of the president, they should be president, the most popular votes, which is not how we do it. And again, you kind of have to agree, well, this is the way it's written in the right. Constitution. We're going by that. And so right. we have I, the I electoral did not, I did not vote for Donald Trump. I voted for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Um, Hillary Clinton got more popular votes, but Donald Trump won the Electoral College. I did not like that personally, but he's legitimately elected president. Um right. Legally, constitutionally, um, I never questioned his legitimacy as a president because it was by the rules. I trusted the system in which it was taking place. Now, you're mentioning the factions by Madison. I think it's interesting to note that when Madison wrote that, the people who could participate in those factions weren't very many. It's, no. white, it's white male, property-owning white males. Right. As we open the gate to more and more people— we bring in more and more factions. Right. So should be even harder. Exactly. So now we're looking at uh, not only uh, people of different races, people of different genders. So the faction pool, uh, Madison would be happy. Madison would be happy that we have created, in essence, more controlled conflict because Madison's thought was you're really not scared of the, the, the location of power. If power is local or state or federal, what you're scared of is concentration of power. The, your local government who is concentrated can be just as tyrannical as the federal government that's concentrated. And this idea of factions is going to divide that. And in essence, that is what's going to make and the system And elections are a referendum. You know, right. if, you're fa if you haven't done what you're supposed to do, uh, there's going to be different factions forming against you or for, you know, if you're not dealing with a problem the majority of people think needs to be dealt with, they're going to get to vote. I and mean, that's that's the way our system works. That's the consent of the governed. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, Trump's election. And, and that was that was unexpected. That was a shock to people. And what went wrong? What went so wrong with those uh polls in 2016? Well, I think when we look at polling, 
I think we need to take a step back a little bit and look at the history of polling and to bring us up into 2016. And I'm going to give you a little walk down uh, the trail of history here. I'm going to try to really make this concise um, because really polling is a relatively new concept because when we lived in a monarchy, who cares what people think? You don't need the king didn't need to care what the commoner thought about. Uh, the peasants didn't matter. But as we adopted more democratic forms, then all of a sudden public opinion is going to start mattering. The, the first documented that I could find use of polling happened in 1824. Uh, and actually it was a small Harrisburg, Pennsylvania newspaper went to Delaware to ask voters their opinion on the election. Um, and 70% of the people in Delaware, at least the people they asked, supported Andrew Jackson. Um, Jackson did not win by 70%. He won the popular vote and actually ended up losing to John Quincy Adams, which which ends up being called the corrupt bargain. And I think we talked about that in a previous podcast. Before long, publications across the United States were running their own kind of straw polls, and they were conducted by simply printing coupons or forms in the newspaper. And you were to rip them out, fill them out, and send them back in. And this was- like who the, you're going to vote for. Exactly. Okay. And when you get into- Now, this is used the whole way into the 20th century because scientific polling really isn't developed yet. Um, and you could get millions of people sending these coupons back in. And again, you're going to get a very narrow band of people who are actually reading this newspaper. Now, what we think of modern polling is uh, is developed with a guy by the name of George Gallup. And you'll probably recognize the, that name through Gallup polling. And George Gallup worked uh, at a newspaper called The Daily Iowan. Probably a very popular newspaper, The sure. Daily Iowan. Sure. Well, newspapers <laughs> used to be, as well, you know. Right. So people... uh, he was trying to figure out God, what part this. of the newspaper did people actually like to read. And really what they used to do is just yank a part of the paper and find out how many people complained. So let's yank the crossword puzzle. <laughs> and if we get a lot of complaints, we know people like the crossword and puzzle. We'll keep that. Right. Yeah. And he said there has to be a better way of this. And so he started developing ways of asking people questions. And it became so successful, he actually went on uh, to do research in it and earned a PhD. Uh, he got involved in advertising. As you can imagine, trying to guess how people are going to spend their money can be very lucrative. In the 1930s, he was looking at how polling was being done with these coupons. And he's like, wait a second, if I can predict what toothpaste people are going to buy and how much, I can also predict who they're going to vote for. This is the same process. So in 1936, the Literary Digest mailed out 2.4 million postcards. And they had done this previously, and people mailed them in, and they had good, had accurate predictions. Right. It was based on telephone and auto registration lists. Um, in 1936, it was Franklin Roosevelt. And do you know who Franklin Roosevelt was running against? Alf Landon. Very good. Which is, you know, I, I think most people know Alf Landon. Yeah, you know President Landon, <laughs> President Alf Landon. I just know him because the county I lived in, Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, did vote for him in 1936. So Lancaster County often out of step with the rest of the nation. But 
Well, according to Literary Digest, Alf Landon was supposed to win this election 57% to 43%. He was going to crush FDR. This is in the midst of the Great Depression. This is in the midst of the Great Depression. In reality, FDR wins at 61-37. Didn't he win 46 out of 48 states, I believe? I think in 36, it might be 40. He might have won all but one in in, in 36. One or two states, yeah. and so they were completely, <laughs> completely and utterly wrong. George Gallup made a prediction actually within one percentage point of how wow. of how close uh, the Literary Digest was going to get. And what he said is, guys, you're missing a huge demographic. And that were po- that's poor people who don't own cars and don't have telephones. And, and they don't get the Literary Digest. And don't get the Literary Digest. And they're going to vote overwhelmingly for FDR. And he was right. And modern polling was born. Now, we're going to, a little later on, I'll talk about one of the biggest mistakes in polling history, and that's the 1948 election, uh, Dewey versus Truman. And maybe many of our listeners are familiar with the famous photograph of Truman holding up the newspaper. Dewey wins. Dewey wins. Um, And polling takes a different form after 1948. And really, modern polling with George Gallup has really been about tweaking the system ever since. Think of it as dialing in a radio and trying to get the best reception. That's what they're doing. They're constantly adjusting dials to try to get right. the best representation of the of the people they can. And 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 let's keep in mind what a poll is. It's a approximate measure of public opinion at a certain point in time. It's taken over, you know, a week or so or uh, you know, some of them are done daily, but it's over. It's at a certain point, and it's never entirely accurate because of the sample size. What you're doing is generalizing. Uh, let's say even in a state poll in Pennsylvania, who you're going to vote for as uh, for president, it's still a huge number of people. Millions and millions of voters are there. You're not going to poll millions of people. You're going to you know, maybe you're going to poll 1,400 people, which is a decent-sized poll, and then you're going to generalize that. And so there's always going to be what they call a margin of error. The more people you poll should be, the less margin of error you have. And um, now the question uh, can can uh, dictate the answer, too. But voting is a fairly straightforward question. But it's also a it's a question of asking you what you're going to do in the future. Yes. And you may or may not do that. So there's right. still, even though that's a simple question, who are you going to vote for? It is asking about an event in the future, and there's a chance you may change your mind. So there, but so there's a margin of error. I want to touch on those. one thing before you move yeah. on, and that's the concept of random sampling, because that touches right into what happened in 1948. Before in 1948, they weren't using random sampling; they were using quota sampling. Can, which, you, can you explain the difference? Yeah. So quota sampling is I'm just going to use white, black, male, female to make this simple, right? So 50% are white. So we need 50% of people. People are, are male, so I or let's say 49. So I need to nine, I need to find 49% of males to talk to. 51% are female, so I need to find 51% of females to talk to. 10% or 15% are black, so I need to talk to 15% black, and I need to talk to 85% white. So I'm only I'm going to find those people and talk to them. That's quota sampling. Right now, random sampling is different. Random sampling says I'm going to talk to a thousand people. I don't care what race, color, or creed they are. They're going to be completely random. And if I don't get enough black voters, 
I'm going to take the answers I did get and adjust that so it equals what the population would be in the general population. So that randomness is supposed to be more accurate and you simply then adjust the different groups and the different demographics, that's turning the knobs and knobs right. and dials to kind of equal the group you're trying to mirror. So that made sampling, and that was really a jump towards being much more accurate, going from quota to random. And that's where we are today. We're at random sampling. And the argument now has always been, how do you turn the knobs? What, what, how, how many Democrats do we turn? How many Republicans, male, female, black, white, and also how many categories? Like what, what happened in 2016? And we're going to talk about some of these poll numbers is that they didn't mess with one of the knobs enough. And the knob that they realized they missed was education. Right. 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 So they, they and, and, and that in turn had to do a little with what they do. You know, they when they first start uh, polling presidential candidates and, and who's most likely to win, pollsters usually concentrate on registered voters. Right. You know, and, and that's an easy thing to do randomness with you got a list of voters and you know you get a computer to generate names and, and you can pull them to be more accurate as they get closer to the election they usually switch to what they call instead of rvs they switch to likely voters or lvs right who's more likely to vote and there's this thing called political efficacy and what that means is you feel like you have some power over the political process. And if you have a high sense of political efficacy, which is a good thing to have, right. you're more likely to vote. So if you're an older white male, you're more likely to vote than a younger, say, Hispanic woman. Right. Generally speaking, you might have a higher sense of political efficacy. Well, one of the factors in political efficacy is education, usually more highly educated people vote in higher percentages. Right. So you're exactly right. They didn't adjust the numbers. They right. didn't They didn't figure the amount of uh, people without college degrees. They got that number wrong, uh, who were going to be likely voters, who were going to show up at the polls. And vote for Trump. Right. right. But, but that group was the Trump supporters. Right. So they, they, and it wasn't on purpose, right? So some people will say, well, polls are very political. Uh, they're just going whatever their political leanings are. And obviously there is some truth to that. Sure. But really, pollsters want to be right because that's where they make their money. So if you're off, where they by, get their reputation, right? So if you're off by twenty percentage points every time, but you're always picking Alf Landon to win the election, <laughs> you know Alf Landon supporters may love you, but you're not going to make much money because no. no one's going to come back. And no the one's going to have you in the Post and the New York Times isn't going to use your poll, right? Because you you picked Alf Alf Landon, and and you know in 2016 and and the the. Total vote was off uh, their prediction. They predicted Hillary would win the popular vote, which was correct. Right. So they just picked it by a higher percentage than she did. Nationally, the polling, and we're using 538 data here because they aggregate the polls. Uh, according to 538, the day of the election, Hillary Clinton nationally was up 3.9%. On the popular vote, she won by 2.1%. The national polls nailed it, they were within 1.8%. In polling, that's a home run. You called it. Um, so on the national level, 
the national polls were really, really good. Right. So, it's, so if we had a national popular vote, right. it would have been perfect. But right. we don't. We have an electoral college vote. So we know that in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan especially, they were off. And part of it is we've already told you why they underestimated the percentage of the vote who was going to be white people they had, did not have a college degree. That's one reason that they were off. Well, let's talk about how far they were off, because you, you'd mentioned something called margin of error. Right. So talk a little bit about margin of error and what that means. Well, uh, they, because it's always a generalization. It's always you're using the 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 you know mathematic principle of, of probability. You're saying if I get this numbers, you know these numbers. I can general generalize safely to what the entire state will. So and you can't do that perfectly. Right. There's always going to be a percentage of error. I think a decent poll has like a 3% margin of right. error. And if it's a close election, then, of course, it's going to be hard for that poll to be predictive. Right. So in Pennsylvania, they missed it overall by 4.6%, which sounds bad. But when you factor in the 3%, yeah, it's not as bad as you it's think. not as bad as it looks. Uh, Michigan was 4.4%. Now, Wisconsin, probably that uh, education error played higher in Wisconsin and other places because they missed Wisconsin by 6.3%. So I think one of our problems with polling is that we expect too much of them. Um, we don't understand their limitations. They aren't, a, they aren't a crystal ball. They're not the magic eight ball. They are a snapshot in time giving you information. Actually, that as soon as you read the poll, that information is really already in the past. It could be a day or a week old. So you're talking about this is what people felt five days ago. Right. That could change right now. And, and there was also um, a lot because of the two candidates. Uh, it was the first time in American history in Poland yes. where they both were seen negatively. They both were underwater. Neither one had 50%. And that makes it harder to pull to because you don't know. Well, you know, people don't approve of either one. So you had a large group of people who were undecided. And that's another thing that went along with viewing these two negatively. And so when when they would do these polls, I remember they, you know, they might be like 44% for Hillary, 41% for Trump or something. That's not close to 100. Right. Right. You've got a bunch of undecided voters there and they don't they have no incumbent. So there's no record that either one is voting there and so it, it made it very hard, and the undecideds uh, broke heavily for Trump, right. which they did not predict, and they broke heavily for Trump. Uh, so to, get, to put numbers to what you're saying, let's just look at Pennsylvania, for example, since most of our listeners in Pennsylvania. Polling at the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton was coming in at 46.3%. All right? Today, Joe Biden is polling at 50.2%. Right. Um Trump was coming in at 42%. Trump right now is almost 45%. So if we look at the number of the numbers today, the numbers today are at almost 95%. If you look at, uh, if you look far at- Far fewer undecided. Right. So far fewer people that you don't know how they're going to break. Right. And I also think it's key that Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, 
Biden's around 50%, maybe a little above. That's That gets you the electoral votes. Yes. And Hillary was never there. There no. were always these undecided voters who could have and did, in fact, in 2016, break for Trump and elect her over, even though, and let's make this clear, Less about ninety thousand voters spread over three states. Right. Total ninety thousand spread over three states made the difference. So it was or we're a not very having, narrow sliver of. Or voters. We're not having this conversation, right? Right. If, if if Hillary wins, regardless how bad the polls were, this would be a conversation some eggheads are having, <laughs> right? Not a national debate over right. the, how accurate polling is. Um, and if we look at um, what well, you, you bring up, Pennsylvania, Florida, Wisconsin and Michigan right now, Biden is polling at 50 percent or higher in all of those, except Florida, where he's at forty nine point two. So he's right at 50 percent. So there's a couple things that were happening in 2016 that really doesn't look like they're repeating themselves in 2020. And, the, and plus, remember, the pollsters have adjusted. Right for their air in underestimating the size of the, the percentage of the people who would vote who are Trump's most fervent supporters who are the non-college educated white person, especially white males. They've adjusted for that. They realize, they, like you said, they don't want to be wrong again. And because if they're wrong again, people will really say, I'm never going to look at those polls again. So they've adjusted for that as well. Right. And there's also, if you look at, read, if you read some of the, what the pollsters are talking about, they will defend themselves. We'll call it the James Comey effect. That James Comey, uh, the, uh, the director of the FBI, dropped a bombshell right before the election with Hillary's emails that may have shifted a percent or two of people who were on the fence and shifted them to Trump so that their numbers were actually closer, but it was really hard to predict. But again, you had those undecideds and and that information. And we're seeing the same thing now with the effort of the Trump campaign to say, well, we have a computer you know, really, Rudy yeah. Giuliani has a computer and has emails on it about, uh, you know, Hunter Biden's computer and there's corruption and Joe Biden's involved. And generally, people are giving that a pass. I mean, and, and some people say, well, you know, the, the media really needs to cover that story. But I don't think people are interested yeah. in the story because they've already made up their mind. Right. That story is not relevant. And when you have an incumbent, you have a retrospective election. People look at what the incumbent this did. Is a, this is an important point. Yeah. They, and, and they go, well, Reagan's famous phrase, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And, uh, you know, he, he asked that about Jimmy Carter. And people said, well, no, I'm going to vote for <laughs> Ronald Reagan. But I think with the, especially with the handling of the of, of the virus and the economic fallout from that, plus there's racial strife. But it's but that's it's all exacerbated by the covid, which affects, you know, poor communities, communities of color uh, uh, disproportionately. But but people are saying, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied with Donald Trump. So now I'm voting against. Right. So I know who that person is, and I'm not voting for them. And most people know who Joe Biden is or think they know. So, you know, these 
these things that are just coming. Oh, he's, he might have been involved in Ukraine. Well, you know, Trump got impeached for that. I mean, that was the whole thing with Rudy Giuliani and, and trying to get the Ukraine to go along with, with conducting an investigation that would damage him. So people aren't buying. And that was all aired during the, the uh, impeachment hearings. So people aren't buying that. And it's, uh, you know, I, I do think... Uh, you know, there's a lot of fear on the Repub uh, on the Democratic side. Right? Well, gee, you know, Hillary led in the polls. It's not 2016. And another thing is you got to look at the groups, too, within these polls. Like you said, the quote is like, who are, you know, yeah. what are particular groups saying? And because of political efficacy, we should have a drinking game for, you know, <laughs> we should have a word that every time we say a new uh, nerdy political science term. So let's drink for political That's it. All right, we'll drink. Let's clink our glasses there. All right, all right. There we go. Political efficacy. Uh, certain groups vote in higher percentages than others. And you know what? There's no group that votes in a higher percentage than seniors. You know, if you're over 65 in America, you vote. They got the time. They got the time. You know, generally they, they have a civic interest. Anyhow, they get their butts to the polls in high numbers. Last time, they went for Trump. They broke for Trump. This time, every poll I've seen says that they are now going for Biden. So you have, in some cases, and in fact, I think in most states, it is a double-digit turnaround in percentages. Well, that's enough right there. Those seniors switching are enough to switch the election. So, again, it's not 2016. And another group that demonstrated their power in 2018 with 40, the election of 40 new um, uh, Democratic uh, members of the House of Representatives are suburban women. And suburban women did vote for Trump in 2016. They Nothing suggests that they're going to do that now. And guess what? They have a high sense of political efficacy. We're talking about people having a little money, a little education. They're going to the polls. And their polls, they probably won't have to wait that long where they live, and they're going to vote. So I think between the suburban women and seniors, let alone now they're predicting a mass uh, a black turnout. It looks right. like it. And there were a lot of African-Americans who stayed home in right. 2016, uh, partially because of Hillary, the Clinton's participation in the 1994 crime bill. Right. Um, which isn't haunting uh, Biden as much because, as you point out, this is really a thumbs up, thumbs down yeah. on Trump yeah. more than it is about Joseph Biden. Yeah, they're, they're going to pick the first black president's vice president, vice president and friend over Donald Trump every day of the week. And that's that's what's happening. So, um, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure if we get to the, you know, uh, election day in, in a week, I I would bet money. I would bet a hundred dollars that Biden will. Well, we know he's going to get more popular. Yes, votes. And, and and this is a problem too. I mean, basically, if you're for Trump, you're going to go. Where can he hang on by his fingernails in the electoral college? That's right. that's and you know that's a that's a position of weakness. We already know that Biden's going to get more popular votes, um, but. They're doing their best, <laughs> Trump is, to maybe have a case that even if Biden does win the popular uh, uh, vote like Hillary did, maybe he can get in to the White House. And we're at ground central for that here in Pennsylvania. PA. Yeah. 
because one of the ways that this could blow up, all right, now, and maybe we should talk about Florida just for a second and the Florida recount. Um, There there was this, you know, around 500-vote margin. There were challenges to the way the, the, the way the votes were cast in areas that would have gone heavily for Gore, you know, Miami-Dade area. And so the Florida uh, State Supreme Court went along in order to recount the count them, and the, the, the National Supreme Court stopped the recount. So the votes were certified by the Secretary of State of Florida, and that's the way it was. And uh, Bush won 271 electoral votes with Florida. You got to get 270 to win. He got 271 uh, with that. So what's like that could happen now? Well, it's probably that probably won't be in Florida. The state that I see more likely for controversy is Pennsylvania. And that's because of the mail-in voting. And we're typically a state that hasn't had massive mail-in voting. So uh, people, as you know, if you look online, have been very receptive to the idea Trump has put out there. Mail-in voting is going to be subject to fraud. And we, and we, adjust, we addressed this last week right. and clearly said in Pennsylvania that's going to be next to impossible. It's the exact same process as the absentee ballot. But... Pennsylvania is not going to count all their votes. They don't start counting until 7 a.m. of Election Day. Right. And every ballot is in two envelopes. Right. So there, even though, and I, I just found this out, uh, the uh, the suburban areas of PA and the cities have invested in high-speed counters. Did you know that? <laughs> I did. Just find that out. So they want to, they want to be able yeah. to go through it quickly. They kind of... But we know that the post office delivery has been slowed up a little bit. So I'm giving you the worst case scenario. And in Pennsylvania, by the way, and the courts have just said that the ballots can be three days after. Now, they have to be postmarked by the right. election day. So ballots could continue to trickle in for three days if it's razor but close the, in Pennsylvania. The Supreme Court let a lower court decision Right. So if, this, if, if Pennsylvania is razor close and a blue, what they call a shift, and it's usually a blue shift, that blue shift happens over three days. Um, that's pretty controversial. Well, what, what Trump has just said, just tweeted today, that we need to have an account on November 3rd. We need to know. Well, that's ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous. No states, there's not a state in the union that certifies their vote election day. So it is ridiculous. I think Missouri took two weeks most states yeah. take, yeah, it's, but anyhow, he says, so here's the potential way it could blow up in PA. So he has a big turnout. Trump has a big turnout on election day. He leads in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is what we call a tipping point state. It's a key state uh, in, in the uh, election. So maybe Biden, we don't know how many, maybe he doesn't get 270 without Pennsylvania. Maybe Trump does, or maybe uh, neither one gets it. But Trump goes, you know what? Uh, we just can't trust these mail-in ballots. They're late. Uh, they're subject to fraud. And, you know, the state legislature decides, can decide who what your slate of electors can be. Right. And if you can prove some kind of fraud, we have a Republican legislature. And they could improve, approve an alternate 
slate of electors potentially to go. Now, it could do two things. It could give Trump the 270 he needs to win, or it could deny either one of them 270, in which case it goes to the House of Representatives. And I know you guys are thinking, well, that's going to be controlled by the Democrats. And you're right. There's going to be more Democrats in the House of Representatives, but they vote by state delegation. One state, one vote. One state, one vote. And you'll probably have more states. Right that have a majority of Republicans in their delegation, and then you could get Trump conceivably that way. This would be horrible for the United States. This would be just be absolutely horrible to go through this process and somebody casting doubt on, again, you'd have a lot of doubt cast on the legitimacy of the election. What you're hoping for is that a lot of what's being said is just rhetoric, and that when push comes to shove, Everybody accepts the uh, results and pe people go and we have a peaceful transfer of power. Now, to go to your point that Pennsylvania could very easily be the tipping point, all the pollsters and all the press, Pennsylvania is one of the keys and we are the keystone state. It also is of the three, what they used to call the blue wall, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Right now, it's polling the closest of the three. Uh, Wisconsin and Michigan are above 7% difference going to Biden. Uh, Pennsylvania is at 5.3. Well, let's remember James Carville's famous comment about Pennsylvania. Yes, we're... Uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Alabama in between. <laughs> between right. And there's, a, there's a lot of truth to that. That we In have terms of voting. voting, yes. That the conservatives, it's like a T. Uh, the conservatives control the north and the, the top part of the state and down through the middle of the state. So it, it, the polling, so here, the question that I have, and I'm, I want to bring up a, a few other things and um, about polling and different ways of looking at it. Um, it's it's almost like looking at a democracy. You know, democracy is uh, it's it, sometimes they say democracy is the worst form of government besides all the others, right? Churchill, right? Is that true? And polling is sort of that. If we want to predict what people are going to do, this is the best tool we have. Right. And because the target is constantly moving. And what I mean by that is they're constantly having to figure out which dials to adjust because different demographics become more important. We are going to be in a constant flux of adjusting the dials to try to meet uh, this, make sure the sample reflects the whole. So we're always- Which, which kind of goes back to Madison is, right. again, he's probably happy because these coalitions right. are, are fluctuate so much, our pollsters are having trouble keeping track of them. Right. So, the question is, could polling be wrong this time? Absolutely. This is why you have elections. Um, if polling was always right, there wouldn't be need for elections. So absolutely, the polling could be wrong. And Wisconsin, uh, Trump could be up four instead of down seven. Now, that would be an error of 11, which would be almost unheard of. The bottom line is the story of polling is actually a pretty good story. They actually do a pretty good job if 
you understand their limitations. Right. And that's the bi- that's a huge part of it. That most Americans don't understand the limitations of polling. They don't understand margin of error. They don't understand how the random sample was taken and the adjustments that go in. They think it's some sort of voodoo magic that all of a sudden well, they think pollsters and some of them do uh, give a guarantee. Right. And and it's not a guarantee. Like you said, it's a snapshot in time. Now, I think the snapshot is pretty clear this time, and I think Trump is going to lose. And I think uh, not only the popular vote, but he's going to lose enough states to lose the Electoral College as well. But unfortunately, and this is, you know, I, this is truth for me here. The, the reason I don't like Trump, I'm not, if you listen to this, this uh, podcast a lot, I'm pretty much of a centrist, but he casts doubts on basic American institutions. He casts doubts on our, um, you know, our spy network, our national security apparatus. I think that we probably, CIA is probably one of those best organizations in the whole world. For that, the Trump hacking into that Trump, the Russians hacking into our last election or influence the last election. All every one of our intelligence agencies said it happened, and, and that's why he cast doubt on and him Trump because everything's it, about Trump. And Trump said it didn't. But happen. but I think the CIA, like I trust, you know, I like those guys. My dad was a career army officer. I think it's the same kind of guy right. that goes into that kind of service. He cast doubts on. Uh, the courts. Well, on the courts, he cast doubts on our scientists and our centers for disease control. And my guess, you know, I, I think these guys probably went to really good universities, right. these men and women. And I think they really know what the hell they're doing. You mean Fauci didn't get into it and go, man, I can't wait. <laughs> well, he was first in his class at, I think, I believe, Cornell Medical School, which I'm sure... You know, I'm sure anybody could do that. So this wasn't the long con <laughs> that at 80 years old, he was going to get us all to wear masks. <laughs> I did it. 50 years in public service. I've done it. Yeah, he, he ruined our economy. And, and so I, that's why I don't. And now he's casting doubt on the legit, legitimacy of elections. I mean, he just said, you know, hey, what happens in Philadelphia? Some ugly things happen there. Right. He's setting up Pennsylvania. And, you know, this could be a terrible thing if, in fact, this worst case scenario happens. You have QAnon. He has a bunch of, of people in the, that believe that Democrats are satanic and of a pedophile and they're pedophiles and not only that i think some QAnon believers it it goes into cannibalism there's some cannibalism there which any yeah i've read that on the so anyhow and 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 it doesn't stop at democrats i think there's like republicans establishment republicans involved in this well you know if there's a doubt about the election and they think that Democrats have taken this. They've stolen it. Well, they're satanic pedophiles. I mean, how, how, how can you possibly accept satanic pedophiles? I'm as... against satanic pedophiles. <laughs> yeah, every, <laughs> almost everybody is. And we're laughing. But, but it's a high percentage of people in the Republican Party, that they, they believe in some of these conspiracy yes, theories. They and do. that's scary. So you can you have probably know that by checking out your social media. You have a crazy uncle or a crazy aunt who yeah. posts th- these things and absolutely believes them. So, you know, hopefully, and this is this is my hope, is that sooner rather than later on uh, November 3rd, 
will know who win. And I have a prediction. All right, before you give your prediction, yeah, right. I want to talk about one more thing. Okay. Um, and this is, is there something better than polls? And I want to provide two examples for you. I'm going to make this quick, and I'm going to actually just give you some information that you can look up yourselves at home. Um, I want you to go look up a gentleman by the name of Alan Lickman, um, and he has something called the 13 Keys to the White House. This is not a fringe thing. Uh, he's been at American uh, University for 50 years teaching. Um, and in early 1980s, he's, he and a fellow uh, academic researched um, elections back to the 1860s, and he came up with 13 Keys. And you ask yourself 13 questions and you answer it true or false. And depending on how many falses you get, you're, you know who wins the election. Okay. Um, he's been perfect. He's predicted every single election. He predicted Trump uh, in 2016. And he is predicting Biden today. The other model we can follow are the predictive markets. Are you familiar with predictive markets? I the mar are you talking about betting? Or yes, okay. the betting yeah, markets. Yeah, yeah, betting. Okay, so it's illegal in the United States to bet on elections, but in other countries it isn't. Uh, one of the most popular is a website called Predict It. And you can go, one of the, people will say this is better than polls because people are actually putting up real money. Right now, predicted, if you want to buy a yes share for Biden, it's going to cost you 63 cents. Now, how do you make money doing this? Well, you buy a bunch of yes shares. This is the easiest way to do it. If you think Biden's going to win, and if he does win, you get $1 for every share you purchased. So you would win 40 cents basically for every dollar. Uh, Trump's are purchasing right, has, so his is right like 40 cents or 30 some cents. So predictive markets are also so predicting- you, you would win more if you got Right, if, if you took the long shot. Right. Um, Predictive markets are always also predicting uh, a Biden victory. Uh, now, some people will argue that predictive markets are more accurate. Actually, they aren't because most people make their predictions on predictive markets based on the polls. So one is resting on the other. So there's many different ways, or not say many, there's a few different ways that you can make guesses and predict. They're all, they all have their flaws but you have to understand their limitations. And if you understand their limitations, they can become valuable tools to let you see kind of where, where the future may be going. So here we go. We have your prediction for the election 2020. Okay, well, you know, I, and again, I'm doing the, following the polls and we've talked about 538. And uh, unlike in 2016, 538 is really, really, the last time I looked, it tilted toward Biden. Uh, the last, they, they uh, simulate the election 40,000 times and then give you a range out of 100, uh, uh, demonstrating how many times he wins. And I think he's right around 87 or 88 percent of the time he wins. Now, before you say, before you give your prediction, you should also know that 538 at the time of the election, 2016, was giving Trump a 30% chance. Right, it's like a one in three chance. Right, so what's... Which, and I looked at that, and I was still teaching back then, and I was glad I did, because... I was able to say Hillary is the favorite, but don't be surprised. And then right, and I some was, people were over, like, "Oh my God!" But five thirty-eight, like, if your team was in the Super Bowl and you had a thirty percent chance of winning the Super Bowl, yeah. that's a pretty good chance. You're not going to be shocked yeah, if they and you win. You would probably bet your team. Yeah, you probably <laughs> bet your team. So, so five thirty-eight is a really good website. If you check it out, so give me your prediction. All right. 
Well, I already said, I mean, Biden's ahead. I think Biden's going, not, obviously he's going to win the popular vote. I think he's going to win the electoral vote. More importantly. Do you have a number? Uh, I don't have, I, I'll See, give. I do have a number. Do you have a, do you have a number? I have a number. I think it's going to be like around 350. What do you got? I have him at 334. Okay. But anyhow, here's what. I predict, and, and, and I hope this comes true so we avoid this, you know, question over legitimacy and we have this uh, election hanging over us for too long. I think f- North Carolina, which reports at 730, has 15 electoral votes. I think they're going to go for Biden, and that's going to be reported early. They Ooh. they have it because of the seven thirty. Right. We're going to know, and I, and I think because of Florida and other reasons, the the uh, the um, media won't project near as quickly. But I think North Carolina is going to go for Biden, and I think when it does, and like I said, they they close their polls at seven thirty. Everybody's going to realize it's over, because let's face it. If North Carolina goes for the Democrat, like it did in 2008, that's the end of it. It doesn't matter anymore. Right. You know, if you can't win North Carolina, yeah, you know, you're, you're not winning Pennsylvania, yeah, Wisconsin, and, and you know, you're done. And um, and so, I always like, you know, I lived in North Carolina. I always liked North Carolina. Uh, I don't know if people know this. There's only one state that voted. And at the beginning of the Civil War, one Southern state that let its people vote on the question of secession, and that was North Carolina. Hmm. They voted against it. They voted against it. It wasn't until they re-voted in the legislature that they actually seceded. North Carolina's not deep south. Right. It's a little different. They've got, they're really, uh, they have Charlotte, great big city. They have that research triangle, mm-hmm. you know, there in Raleigh. You have Duke, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, these famous institutions. All those, you know, these are indicators of large uh, um, democratic populations. I urban, mean, you got educated. A, that's yeah. You got suburban. You know, now what you're thinking in North Carolina? There's a large rural area, especially in the western mountainous part of the state. And that's Trump country, but in Buncombe County, you have the city of Asheville, and Asheville has these people. We'll go back to the '60s again. <laughs> They have people there that look like hippies in Asheville. Uh-huh. Have you ever been to Asheville? It's a, it's I, a, it I, is a... I know of Asheville. It, and it's by far the most populated in, uh, Buncombe County in the western North Carolina. And I'm, they're not going to... Hippies aren't voting for Donald Trump. They're just not. Another thing I really like about Asheville, it's the brewery mecca of the East Coast. They have... Uh, how about that? Yeah. They have New Belgium Brewery, which started in Colorado. They have a brewery there. You got Oscar Blues, famous brewery, does, uh, you know, Dale's Pale. I love that. They have a brewery. They have a bunch of breweries there. They have a whole beer tourism industry. So this might be wishful thinking on my part, but I want the hippies and the beer drinkers of Buncombe County <laughs> to stand up on November 3rd and save the country some turmoil. And I think they will. And, you know, you can follow that. You know, North Carolina, we were talking about all these lines. This is how they have a Democratic governor and Democratic uh, secretary of state. So they have an app for their popular, populated areas like Wake County 
where a potential voter can check the, the length of the lines. Kind of like Disney. Yeah, you can check the length of the lines before you go there. I mean, how pro that's so great. Right. So they're going to get an accurate count. Uh, it's, I don't think there's going to be any question from the Republicans in North Carolina that it is an accurate count. And they're going to get it early. And that's going to end Donald Trump's chances. That's my prediction. That's a solid prediction. Yeah. Uh, we're going to leave it there. I think that gives us a lot to digest. Um, hey, if you want to contact us, you know the email, historypoliticsandbeer at gmail. Uh, we're going to come back next week. That will be our pre-election. Uh, we'll try. Maybe we'll come back on Monday uh, and write the election's yeah. on Tuesday. Yeah. So actually, maybe white post-election will come back uh, and hit you with a pot. Either way, keep a look. If you have anything to tell us, we'd love to hear from you. Um, until next time, see ya. See ya.